Amen. How's everybody doing? Good. Um, for those of y'all that um, know me or that care about me at all, you know that I've been traveling a lot in the past, in, at the beginning of this year. And I just want to say, especially as we're about to talk about love again from the scripture, that I really love y'all and that I, I miss y'all when I'm gone and it, and it feels good to be here. So, um, And uh, I'd love to tell you more about how things have been going so y'all know what's going on with me. But if you want to hear that, you have to come tonight to our 5 p.m. prayer service. And uh, we'll talk about that and other things going on in the life of our church. And we will end at 6, so you should come. And we'll talk about some things other members are doing, how we can pray for them. And um, while you're over here, you know, you can connect with people to have Super Bowl parties. I don't know if John's having anybody over, but if you showed up to his house, I'm sure he'd be glad to have you. Um, If he tries not to let you in, say that you're submitting to the other pastor. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask, God, that you would speak to us from your word. We, we don't want this to be a wasted time, God. Father, we don't want this to be fruitless. God, we don't want this to be proud. We don't want this to be um, dependent on man's strength, God. And I, right now, feel very aware of my own weakness and, and uh, fatigue. And, uh, you know, you're a mighty God, and I'm not a mighty man, but your word is. And, God, we pray you... Speak to us now that you would uh, give me grace to preach your word, Father, and that you would give your people grace to hear your word, God, and that as I preach and everyone else hears, that all of us, including me, would worship over that word, would be impacted by the love of your son, Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, a few weeks ago, um, we talked about love from 1 John 3. And in that text, the way that we define love in that text was, you know, that love is a holy affection for someone and a selfless commitment to their good. And we looked as, as John talked about uh, our call to love one another. That was our calling. That was that post. That's how we know that we're alive in Jesus. And today we're going to go back to 1 John 3, and we're going to look at those two verses right after that. And we're going to continue to think about love. And, and I want to start by saying this. Uh, that I think helps us think through what this passage is saying is that when you make a claim, you have to back it up. When you make any kind of claim with your words, you have to back it up with your actions. This is something that all of us understand, that we see in regular life all the time. This is not just something that Christians think. I mean, you can even think of kind of cultural proverbs, actions speak louder than words, right? When we say something with our mouth, we got to back it up with our actions. One of the ways um, that I can think about this in my life is that when I was in, I guess it was about junior high, so I went to this private school against my will. My parents forced me to go there. I wanted to go to the cool school. They said, no, we want you to get a good education because the cool school didn't have a good education at that time. So they said, hey, we want you to go here. And so I, because I was at this private school, was under the impression that I was amazing at basketball. Because it was a private school, and nobody's amazing at basketball at private school. Very rarely. And so, you know, I thought I was a man. This new kid was coming to the school. And I was like, hey, junior high, I'm about to be the man. I'm going to be the point guard. And he came. He said, nah, I'm going to be the point guard. I was like, bruh, I will be the point guard. So we're going back and forth. I'm over speaking. I eat, sleep, and breathe basketball. I didn't. And, uh, and we get to the point where we have tryouts, and I've run my mouth. He's run his mouth. I've talked about how great I am. 
And then tryouts came. And let's just say that it was soon after that that I started giving attention to music. Music was my calling. <laughs> That's what God was calling me to, to give my time to. But I just say that to say, you can make a lot of claims with your mouth. You can run your mouth a lot, right? You can have self-confidence in things. But when you make a claim, you have to back it up with your actions. As Christians, we often claim to love one another, right? Did we love other Christians, right? That uh, churches are families. But do we really? Do we really love one another? Are we just running our mouth? Are there any actions to back those words up? So, for instance, this church gathering right now, is this anything more than just a bunch of people in a room together singing some songs that they like and listening to somebody talk? You know, what's, what sets this apart from what's going to happen later on today where a bunch of people are going to gather to watch a football game, right? They'll all be in a place. There'll be a halftime show. They'll sing some songs together. There'll be some penalties. The refs will talk. They'll listen to some people talk. All right, what's the difference between a gathering like that and a gathering like this? Well, the difference should be love. You know, what's the difference between when you gather with Christians around the world or when you just gather at a meeting at work? One of the differences should be the love that binds us together. I think if we really begin to examine our lives closely, right, then, then we'll be in danger, if we don't examine our lives closely, then we'll be in danger of calling something love that isn't love at all, something where we're just running our mouths. And we remember that John just said, if you don't love the brothers, then you do not have life. You're not alive. So this is important. So I want to remind you of the urgency he pressed on us. Love is really important to be seen in your life, because if it's not in your life, you shouldn't be sure that you even have true life, right? So he's going to give us a little bit more He's going to give us a little bit more detail about what this love looks like. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to be reading verses 16 through 18. All right, so John has just reminded us that love is basically our pulse. It's that thing that shows whether or not there's spiritual life in us. And then he starts to tell us exactly what this love looks like. This is God's word, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. God's word. And I think the main point of this text is that Christ is the perfect example of love. Therefore, love shows up in our actions, right? So if you only leave with the one thing today, leave with that, that love shows up in our actions. Real love, Christian love shows up not just in our words, but our actions. And I, and I want to look at this just in, in three points, because no matter what I look at, I can't help but split it into three points. So number one, you want to know, if you want to know how should I treat my Christian brothers and sisters, number one, lay down your life. Lay down your life. And this is going to be my longest point, so don't get afraid. You know, when it's going for a while, you're like, oh, shoot, is everyone? He said he had three points. It's going to be three hours. So number one, and I'll read verse 16 again. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 
And of course, we know that he that he's referring to there is the Lord Jesus. And John is putting some flesh, the Apostle John is putting some flesh on what it means for us to love one another. Because he doesn't just want to leave us with an abstract idea of love. Right? In verse 15, he talked about Cain, what love is not, that murderous act. Pointed to Cain as, as an example of hate, right? Right? And he used one person, Cain, and one act in particular from their life, murder to show us what love does not look like. And now he's going to point to Jesus, one person and one act in particular, his death on the cross to tell us what love does look like, giving us polar opposites. Cain killed for his own good. Jesus died for our good. So Jesus is the face of sacrificial love here, and God has called us to that same sacrificial love. So again, if you're wondering, you're looking around, how should I treat these people, my brothers and sisters in Christ? Treat them like Jesus did. Jesus laid his life down for them. In order to um, learn how to walk, I mean, kids watch their parents, right? So my kid, my son, you know, he's three, he's been running around for a while. My daughter, she's one and a half, she's been walking. And as they begin to walk, it is very scary because their heads are a little too big for their bodies, and so they don't have good balance, so they like tip over side to side, hundreds of falls per day. You get used to it, but it's always within an inch or so of an edge. But they're learning how to walk. There's this mysterious, amazing thing that happens where they see people move around, and they think, man, that looks like a more efficient way to get from A to B, and they figure out how to put one leg in front of the other and learn how to walk. Same thing with talking, right? They, they listen to parents talk, they hear words, and then they figure out somehow to, how to put their tongue on the roof of their mouth or do whatever to make certain sounds and to form words, and they get it from other people. They have examples. That's how they learn it. And in the same way, the Apostle John doesn't want us to just have this random, abstract idea of love. We don't have to wonder what love is like. We don't have to come up with it on our own. He's saying, no, no, no. You should know what love is, and this is how we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us. There is our example. Jesus, in that sense, is our parent who's the model for how we're to treat one another. It's what love is supposed to look like. So here's what I want to do here at the beginning, is I want to take a moment then. If that's how we know what love is supposed to look like, I want to take a moment to just kind of soak in and reflect on that, the death of the Lord Jesus. Let's look at that first phrase, he laid down his life for us. Now, I think sometimes it can, you know, become really easy for us to look over how amazing that truth is, that Jesus laid down his life for us. We've heard this so many times, right? We heard it maybe when we were little kids before we even had any understanding of what sin was, and we've heard it in so many songs and so many sermons. So that's one of those things where it's like we think we understand what it means, so when we read it, we just kind of hop right over it. I don't want to hop right over it because this is the meat of the passage. This is what empowers the rest of the passage, that Jesus actually laid down his life for us. It doesn't need to get old to us. We have to remember it because the death of Jesus isn't just some random death. Right? It's not just a guy who died. It's not even a random martyrdom. There have been other people who've died for different reasons and different causes and were murdered by people. But the death of Jesus is unlike any other death in human history. And it's, and it's plain right in the language that John uses. Right? He doesn't just say that Jesus was killed or that Jesus was murdered or just that his life ended. It says he laid his life down. His life was not snatched from his hands, but he willingly gave it away. 
He laid it down. Right? For you to lay something down, it has to be in your hands. What Jesus says in John 10, he says, he said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So that the Lord Jesus wasn't, when he was being crucified, he wasn't passive in the crucifixion. He was doing something active. He was actively laying his life down. If I walked out of this building and somebody punched me and took my money, that's robbery. If I walked out of this building and I handed someone my money, that's charity. The death of Jesus was not robbery, it was charity. His life was not stolen from him. He gave it away freely of his own accord. So, I mean, if you think about this, who Jesus is, the divine son of God, you know, for him to lay his life down, as if it wasn't enough that he left the heavenly places to come to our filthy, fallen earth and became a man, right? He was born of a woman that he created and afterward breathed his first breath of oxygen, another thing that he created and spoke into existence, as if it wasn't enough that he submitted himself to learning. God learned. Right? Became a man and learned, and growing and maturing like a regular male, as if it wasn't enough that he hungered and he thirsted and got tired like a regular human being. As if that wasn't already enough for Jesus to sacrifice, then Jesus sacrificed his very life. Let's not jump over what it means for Jesus to lay down his life for us. There is no greater sacrifice that someone can make than to lay their life down. Yes, it would be a sacrifice for me to give you some money. It would be a sacrifice for me to give you some of my time. It would be a sacrifice for me to do a lot of things for you. There's nothing greater that I could possibly give than my life. And that's what Christ has done for us. And Jesus notes this in John 15, 13. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. And there's Jesus talking about what true love is and not someone who's just running his mouth. Jesus laid his life down and showed us how it was done incredible love of Jesus. Again, the death of Jesus is not like other deaths. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but this one is worth beating. All right, there have been other people who are willingly killed for some cause. Socrates for philosophy, right? Martin Luther King for, for civil rights. But Jesus is not some ordinary martyr. I mean, Jesus is not a, he's the eternal sovereign God, right, he's the second person in the Godhead, right, which means he's all-knowing, which means Jesus was aware and willing to lay his life down before he had even been born, and then he lived according to that plan. Who else could make a claim like that? I was conscious before I was born, and I created the world, and I decided to then be born and to go after this plan to lay my life down. Who else could ever make that kind of claim? Who else was sovereign over the people who murdered them? Who else created the people that murdered them? Who else holds the universe together by the word of their power and so sustained the people that murdered them? Nobody can make that claim. There has never been a death like the death of the Lord Jesus. No one has ever been able to lay their life down with the awareness and the power and the authority and the love that Jesus did. And of course, nobody has the power to take it back up like he did. Think about those great martyrs, Socrates and Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln, John the Baptist, Stephen, Peter, every apostle, all of those men did not have that sovereign power, right? They weren't able to raise themselves from the grave, but Jesus did. Jesus and his death are in a league of his own. 
But we're not done, though. He laid his life down. Why? What motivated Jesus to do something so strange, the God-man to die? Why would he do that? He laid his life down for us. Just meditate on that for a second. Jesus laid his life down for us. That means you, Christian. You fearfully and wonderfully made, but, but broken and sinful, you. Envious and lustful, angry, you. Selfish, rebellious towards God, insecure, right? Depressed, you. Laid his life down for you. And what does that tell you about the love of Christ for us? When you think about all those adjectives, right, that are true of us, sinful, we're rebellious, we're lustful, we're angry, that the love of Jesus for us is not based on us. It's based on his character. He loves us not because we've deserved his love. Right, we are created in his image. There's inherent beauty and glory there, but we're broken and we couldn't earn it. And he loved us because he's loving. That tells us even something about the nature of our own love. You know, when um, you ask kids what they want to be when they grow up, and they'll be like, I want to play basketball. That was me when I grew up till middle school. And, you know, but so, some people will say, I want to be a fireman. Right? Because this is a, a noble, heroic profession, in part because firemen are brave enough to see a fire and say, that's deadly. I'm going in that right now, right, to go get other people. And this is the heroic death of Jesus, right, where the world is burning. It's, it's lostness and brokenness and sin, and Jesus willingly puts himself in danger. But it's not like he thinks he's getting out. He knows he's going in there to die to save other people, and Christ doesn't. Christ laid his life down for And before we start to talk about how that means we should live, I just want to ask you if that love of God, that great, powerful love of God, especially at the cross, has encouraged you this week. Like, I know we come in here with different issues, different situations. We've had hard weeks. I'm aware of many of the hard weeks that many of us have had. I wonder if you ever, when you look for encouragement, instead of just ignoring it, instead of just complaining, instead of just talking to somebody about it, or just being encouraged that it might get better, I wonder if the love of God at the cross encourages you. It should. It should. It should, one, show you that God will go to great lengths to love you. That God's love is powerful and mighty. Not only that, God gave his son for you. So when we don't have something that we want, and we're like, God, why won't you give this to me? You don't like me, God? God is like, I gave Jesus. What more could I give? And so that tells us when God doesn't give us something, it's not because he doesn't want to. It's not because he can't. It's because we're wrong and it's not best for us. He gave Jesus. I hope the love of God encourages you in your week coming up. All right? So let's get to the second part of that. That's sinners now. Christ laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And this this is the main thrust of this text, that we then, in light of knowing the love of Jesus, should love one another. So I do not think Jesus is saying 
we should find a way to be killed for our brothers and sisters, right? I'm not telling you to go try to find danger and to leave a note saying I love you. That's not what I'm saying. Though there are some rare times when Christian love may require actually laying our lives down. You know, you think of uh, um, William Tyndale, you know, died trying to translate Bibles into English, right? We, we're still benefiting from work like his. But he was, he was killed for that. But it's not the case for most of us, right? We're not going to literally die. But what is required for every single one of us, without exception, is self-sacrifice and daily death to self in order to love one another. And he doesn't say we should consider that. He doesn't say that's an option. He doesn't say that's a bonus. He said we ought to. And the sense of that word ought may press harder than we think. It's a sense of obligation. You ought to do that. You are obligated to do this in light of what Christ has done. It's almost like saying, I gave you some money to get me some milk, so you ought to go to the store. What I gave you obligated you to do something. The love of Christ in our life obligates us to love one another in similar fashion. And that should tell us something about the nature of Christianity. And that should rebuke a lot of preachers who run their mouths and it looks nothing like Scripture. Because this is the model we've been given to follow. Not a pet for our love. This is the model of Christian love. Not a pat on the back. Not a high five but a bloody death. That's the example Jesus gave us. Not a cheerful phrase, but sacrificing everything. And if you look in Scripture, the death of Jesus is pointed to as a reference point for all kinds of morality. The Christian life is one of self-denial, and specifically self-denying love. But when we read this, we start to have all kinds of questions like, okay, well, which of my brothers and sisters am I supposed to love like this? Surely not that dude who did this or that to me. Surely not her who looks at me crazy. Surely not him who's kind of awkward. I don't like talking to him that much. I don't think he's talking about just those who deserve it. Especially not if Jesus is our example. I mean, think about Romans 5. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to be lovable before he died for us. He died for us while we were a mess. Christ died for messy people and loved the messy people. And he's called us to lay our lives down in love for a messy people. Those who haven't been loving towards us, those who are resistant to our love, we're called to love. Right? The love that Scripture is calling for here is stronger than, you know, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It's like even if you stab me in the back, I'll scratch yours. Self-sacrificing love. And when we brand somebody unlovable and refuse to love them, we are forgetting the gospel itself. I mean, do you think you're too good to lay your life down for certain kinds of people? Right? You may consider yourself important. We all have the same calling if we're in Christ. And if you think you're too good and too important to lay your life down for people, what do you think you're saying about the Lord Jesus? Christ is, is our example here. And in this text, John is he's talking to Christians, right? So I, I know there may be even non-Christians here and friends and family of ours that aren't Christians and consider themselves to be loving and say, hey, I'm loving. That has nothing to do with Jesus. And I would never try to say that people who aren't Christians can't do anything that would be considered loving. But according to this text, if you don't know Christ, then you don't know love, at least not this love that John is talking about, right? He's saying by this we know love. Christ. 
And so this holy affection and selfless commitment to their good can only come from the source of true love. That's the uniqueness of Christian love is that it flows from the source of all love. Right? I'm a rapper and hip-hop, the worst thing that you can do is biting, like biting somebody else's rhymes or like having a ghostwriter who's writing your rhymes for you. That is a cardinal sin. If you do it, you are out the game. Hence the Meek Mill and Drake beef. We're not going to talk about that right now. But, but here's the thing. That originality that is a must with hip-hop is not a must when it comes to Christian love. By definition, we are biting, right? By definition, you know, we're not trying to write an original hit when it comes to our love. We're just doing a cover of the greatest hit that ever was. And it's a weak cover. It ain't that good, but it pleases God. He's called us to that, right? He's called us to copy him. By definition, that's what he's called us to do. And not only that, but Christian love has God above all, right? There's no holy affection for others if you don't know the holy one. And you can't seek someone's good if you don't know what good is. We can't come up with our own definitions of good. This is why we're so confused about what love is in our world, right? It's not loving to love someone more than God. That's not love. If God is not at the center, that's not love. It's not loving to approve of somebody's sin. If God isn't at the center, that's not love. Love, we know love by what Christ has done. And he died so that sinners like us can be saved. Because our sin gets us in this eternal trouble with God. We've committed this eternal crime, this, this eternal ransom on us. That, I mean, we, uh, there's this eternal judgment on us. And so Christ died and he erases that and we can know him. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus... I want you to be able to trust Jesus and to know this love personally. So before we even talk about you loving others, I want you to experience the love of Jesus. I want to urge you, right now, you can turn away from your sins and know this love of Jesus. The greatest love that ever was. Some of us waste our whole lives chasing after people trying to get them to love us. Person after person after person, thing after thing after thing, job after job after job. Look, you can know the greatest love that has ever been right now if you would turn from your sins and trust Jesus. And God would be pleased to pour out that love on you, not for 10 years. He's not going to leave for all of eternity. That's what's made possible by the death of Jesus. And we, we want you to know how you can know Jesus. If you have questions about that, please come just talk to us after the service. Last thing I say, and I promise I'll get to the next point. Sometimes people may say, why, you know, why do churches, why do you? I used to wonder this when I was a kid. When the sermon every Sunday at my mom's church would end uh, uh, with a little rhythmic, and on the first day he was still in the grave, <laughs> and on the second, and then we got to the third day and he rose. I was like, why do we always end here? Like, why do you keep saying the same thing? And as I matured, it's because I realized, well, the cross is everything we have, right? It's central to everything. Somebody may say, just, just get to the love part. Don't worry about that. We can all agree on love. No, no, that love doesn't exist without that love. That, I mean, that's what empowers that love. That's what shows us what that love is. Without the cross, this is hopeless for us, right? If Jesus didn't die to make us new, we are just, we might as well just quit and go home and wait for the Super Bowl to come on. But Christ did die, and it's central for us in thinking about how we love one another. So Christ is the perfect example of love, and our love should show up in our actions, so we should lay down our lives for each other. Not only that, number two, 
open your heart. So number one, lay your life down. If you want to know how to treat your Christian brothers and sisters, number two, open your heart. He's going to start to talk about not just our hearts and our actions. He's going to start to talk about some stuff that for some of us gets real close in. He's going to start talking about our stuff. He's going to start talking about our money. And the world has such a different view of material things than Scripture does because the world says, hey, just get everything you can, then just enjoy it as much as you possibly can, and pat yourself on the back for your hard work. And one of the reasons the influence of the world is dangerous because that's what our hearts love to hear. We love that. Right? I would love, yes, I will get as much as I can and enjoy as much as I can, but Scripture presses against that. It doesn't tell us to keep everything to ourselves. Usually when Scripture talks about money, let me be clear, money's not evil, right? The love of money is the roots of all kinds of evil. But when Scripture talks about money, it's almost always warning us, almost always exhorting us towards generosity because there's a danger there with our stuff. And because of that, that's going to be a really good gauge for where our hearts are and where our love is, right? Verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Right? It's all the sacrificial picture of the love of Jesus. And then he's going to apply it to a real-life situation like a litmus test. Right? Oh, you, you love your brother. What do you do when you see your brother or sister in need? When he says, has the world's goods, he just means material things. He's saying they have what they need if anyone has plenty materially and sees their brother, sister in need. So he's painting a picture of someone who has what they need. They see their brother, sister who doesn't have what they need, and they close their hearts towards them coldly. Right? He's not saying if you have nothing, you can't give nothing. He's saying if you have plenty and they're lacking. Right? So it's already clear here that the Bible makes assumptions about our finances that the world doesn't. The Bible assumes that we have, with our finances, some responsibility to one another, right? That the money that we make, we have some responsibility towards one another. Often we only think of that like parents to a child. Well, of course, I'm a parent and I need to feed my child. But we never think of it outside of that. But Scripture saying, no, no, no. In the spiritual family, we have responsibility towards one another. And real love isn't too weak to make it to our wallets because real love shows up in our actions. So someone may ask, what does me and my money have to do with them? I worked hard for mine. The scripture always assumes this responsibility that we can't think about our finances without thinking about each other. And this isn't a new concept. Acts 2, all who believed were together had all things in common. They were selling their possession and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This new Christian community, so concerned for the needs of one another, they were selling their stuff. Right. So if any of us in this room ever gets wealthy or for the few of us who may be, I wonder if you think God gives people wealth just so they can just enjoy it, just for the good of a single person, just so we can enjoy everything we can acquire, just so we can know, feel good, knowing there's money stacking up in a bank account. And Scripture is clear. If you get rich, you're only rich so that you can be rich in good works. Right. It's almost like God is funding a plan like a startup business of love, right? You need some money to get this started? Here you go, right? I'll entrust you with some resources, but I want to see a return on my investment. And the fruit from that is love. 
We need to be rich in good works. We have to be careful not to let our hearts cling to money. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 14 and 15, uh, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. He says, I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, right, talking about them giving, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. He's saying, look, I'm not saying that just you should work hard and they should be lazy. I'm just saying right now you have more than you need and they have nothing. Right? And so later when you're struggling, then they can help you. And there's this loving exchange and loving one another. Abundance is never an end in itself. It's given to us to care for others. Now, some of y'all are thinking, just so you know, Trip, this ain't my struggle because I don't have money. <laughs> and I would say that's probably a larger number of us than those who are wealthy. And that's fine, but I, just, I don't want you to exclude yourself from this text. Just know, when he says abundance, he doesn't mean, he's not just saying, um, he's not just saying if you're uh, filthy rich. It means, do you have more than you need at the moment? Right? I think that's what he's talking about, about abundance. So that doesn't mean, okay, when I get to a million dollars finally, then I can give somebody $10,000. No, it can mean you have $10 and you can help your brother out with one dollar. It may mean that you are able to get your groceries this week and you help somebody else get some of their groceries. It might just mean you have enough just to have someone over and include them on your meal to cook a little bit more. Whatever kinds of little abundance that we have in our life are not there just so we can have seconds. It's not that we can't enjoy the things that God has given us. That's a good thing, but he's given it to us in part to help care for each other. I cannot stress enough my desire and my prayer that God would make us a church where we care for each other. That we just don't come in here and sing songs and, and go home. Right? So he's not saying, look, y'all need to care for the slackers, right? He's saying faithfully use your resources to care for each other. 1 John 3, 17, right? Next verse, 17. If anyone has the world's goods, he's a brother in need. Um, yet closes his heart against him. That's what I wanted to get to. Closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Those are strong words. Closes his heart against them. Not just don't help them. It's a heart issue. Closing our heart. Shutting the door in their face. Right? It's like somebody coming in cold, you shut the door in their face. Or you know they're out there in the cold trying to warm with newspapers and you in there with blankets and you don't really care. Right? It's closing our hearts off, refusing to care about them, and therefore refusing to care for them. It's a heart issue that he's getting at here. One example of this I read in a book was this, um, this CEO of one of the most massive uh, countries, um, most massive companies in our country. And when he, was, he had a child, right? He was in denial that it was his, and then he finally owned up to it. And they always had this tense relationship. And so he's making millions and millions and millions of dollars. Their relationship is on and off. It's time for his daughter to go to college. And because he happens to be mad at her at the time, even though he's a multi, multi, multi-millionaire, refuses to give her a cent. And she has to go to one of his friends to ask for money to get her education. That's his daughter, his family, his responsibility. She's in need. He has overabundance. And he closes his heart to that's the picture of what he's given us in this text. And it was so cold of him because it's his family. And we as a family have special responsibilities toward one another. Now, most of the time, 
When we close our hearts off to one another, it's not because we're millionaires and we're apathetic. Often it's just because we're oblivious to other people's needs, right? There are needy brothers and sisters all around us, but our affections are closed off towards them because we're so wrapped up in ourselves, right? We go through our weeks so focused on our wants and our desires and our problems and our own needs that we have no idea about the needs of other people. Almost like when we walk down the street, when people walk down the street, stand at their phone, and they bump into you real hard and knock people down. It's like, well, they didn't do it on purpose. They didn't push you, but they were so oblivious and wrapped up in themselves that they weren't able to be conscious of anyone around them. And we do the exact same thing. That selfishness, whether they pushed them or they were looking at their phone, led to the same result. Somebody was on the ground. And in the same way, whether or not we're just closing our hearts off on purpose or we're oblivious, our selfishness leads to the same thing, someone in need that can't be helped. We're so committed to our good, we don't have any space to have any commitment to the goods of other people. So I want to say this. Would you even know if your brothers and sisters were needy? All right, when was the last time you just asked somebody if they needed something? When was the last time you offered your help to a family who you thought may be in need? Loving one another, laying our life down for each other requires that we actually pay attention to each other, right? It means we actually probe and ask questions sometimes. It means we take an interest in other people's lives. It means being open about where we are, otherwise we won't know when we're in need, right? We can't close our hearts off like that. We can't do that. And, and this is countercultural because he's calling us to work hard for the benefit of other people sometimes. So John is going to ask another penetrating question right there. You know, if you do do that, how does God's love abide in us? We cannot claim that God's love is in us if we don't show it. In the same way, I can't claim I'm committed to my neighborhood being clean, but I will just never pick up trash. I cannot claim to be committed to your good if I refuse to ever do anything about us. And a good, again, we can look at the love of Jesus here and that he didn't cut us off. He was merciful to us, not cold. We want to be that kind of church that cares for one another. But that does mean that we got to be open about our needs. This goes both ways. Some of us, if somebody after church right now says, hey, man, sincerely, do you need anything? We'll be like, I haven't eaten in a week. Um, I don't need number prayer, brother. God bless you. Right? And we don't like to be open about the things that we need. Some of us are so proud, we cannot be helped by anybody. And I just want you to know that a healthy dependence on one another is not a sign of immaturity, but a sign of maturity. It's a sign of humility and loving God, a willing dependence. Right? We ask God to do things, and then he has a clear means of grace, like, I gave it to you. And we're unwilling to take it so that we're not only snubbing our nose up at the person who's trying to help us, but at God himself who provided his people to help you. We need to stop being so too oblivious to ask each other about our needs. And we need to stop being so proud to receive help when we have needs. It has to go both ways in order for this to work. And of course, Jesus is the best example of this kind of generous love. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And the cross, Jesus was the best example of loving generosity, right? So we should lay our lives down, we should open up our hearts, and, and finally, we should love with our actions. 
So I think he's pointed out, hey, lay your life down. That's what it looks like. You know, open your heart. Don't close your heart off. And now he's going to sum it up here in this last part. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Not word or talk, but in deed or in truth. And he has to say this because for some reason we have this category in our minds of this kind of love that's just a feeling we express, that there's just a sense that we can look at someone and feel favorably towards them, and that's what love is. Or just fuzzy feelings like, man, I like that guy. Doing my Christian duty of loving my brothers and sisters. No, no. There is no love that doesn't show up in actions. That's the only kind of love there is. Real love only has one form, active love. Active love. So this is like a lie detector test. Lie detector test frightened me because when I first got married, my wife made me watch too many CSI-ish shows, okay? So I've seen too many of these heated interrogations, slamming on tables and lie detector tests. The the thought of a lie detector test scares me. It seems like black magic. I don't like it. (laughs) But this right here is like a lie detector test. Hey, I love you. You don't do nothing, though, right? So you say you love your brothers and sisters. Do you do anything? Does it show up in your actions? That is our lie detector test to know if it's actually true. Think back on the last year. If you're a member of our church, think back on the time you've been a member of our church. How have you interacted with those who you say you love? Have there been any sacrifices? Right? Has there been any bending over backwards? Has there been any checking in on their needs? One of the things that was a real encouragement to me just yesterday as I was talking to John and we were talking about the Browns and I was just asking because I had been gone this week just, you know, whether or not um, our church had been really caring for them well, uh, mainly because I was just thinking if I need to edit a rebuke in my sermon and so we were talking. He was telling me about one young lady. I will rebuke you all in Jesus' name. I was... He was telling me about one sister in our church. He was telling me about lots of stuff. One sister in our church who stayed up all night cooking them, like literally all night, drove an hour and a half to take it to him, was serving him. And as he's saying this, I'm just tearing up because I'm thinking, God, this is what we ask you to do. You would make us a church centered around Jesus where we would actually love each other. We'd be aware of each other's needs. And that even though, like, I need sleep. Like, that's, God doesn't give supernatural not a need for sleep when you want to serve somebody. And didn't to that sister either. But she laid her life down for her brothers and sisters. It's what God has called us to do. Sometimes we don't love well because it's not convenient. Love is not convenient. Love hurts sometimes, and if it never hurts, then it's not real love. Because by nature, this love is sacrificial. Quick word then to the introverts. I'm an introvert. I know some of y'all are because when I say hi, you don't look me in the eye. So, so here's the thing, you know, in our ability to love one another, we can only love one another with the makeup that God has given us. So sometimes I'll see an extroverted dude, what's up, bro, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, knows everybody's name, and I'm like, dang. You know, I don't have that same amount to spend, and I feel discouraged for about 30 seconds till I remember I don't want to be that dude, right? It's not that introverts, you know, extroverts, it's not that we don't love you, we just need a break from you often, okay? <laughs> but here's what I want to say. Even though we can only love with the makeup that we have, knowing whether or not you're an introvert or an extrovert or whatever, that's good for you to know. So for me as an introvert, I know that naturally I'm probably going to be more comfortable to not love people as much as I should because I would much rather be alone sometimes. 
And so what I have to do is push myself outside of myself, right? Go against my personality sometimes to love people. And sometimes I'm drained and I don't want to see anybody but my wife. I'm saying, Lord, you called me to love other people. And then I'm always happy when it actually happens. I'm like, oh, that wasn't that bad. I made that up in my mind. But, <laughs> but that's the thing. Another encouragement to introverts, I never, almost never spend time with another Christian and don't leave encouraged. That person is filled with the Holy Spirit. They will encourage you. It's good. You're serving them and they're serving you. Push yourself outside of yourself. A quick word to the introverts. So just finally, look, there is no other kind of love. Love is an act of love. Not to say we can't love with words. There's some ways we can love with words, but there's still actions. Think about the New Testament commands to love one another. These are active verbs. Encourage one another. Admonish the idol. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Older women teach the younger women. Exhort one another. Restore one another gently. These are active commands. Love is not just abstaining from mean things. Love is actively doing good. Actively doing good. And we shouldn't just wait around for opportunities to love other people. We should seek opportunities to. Jesus didn't just wait around for us to crawl to him. He came after us and pursued us. This week, seek somebody out. See if there are ways that you can serve them. And those people who always try to pretend like everything's okay, serve them gently by pushing and asking until they, you can find a way you can serve them. Right? Even in ways they don't think they need. It's a good, good thing for us to do. And so now you might think, well, I'm discouraged. I don't love well. How do I grow in love? My main encouragement, look back at the cross, right? If this, if this is what love is supposed to look like, keep looking at the cross, right? So that as you look at that cross, it encourages you. You see that love, right? You remembering the motivation for your love. You remember what empowers your love. You're reminded how you've been mercifully and sacrificially loved. We never want to be a church that stops talking about the cross because then we will also be a church that stops loving one another. That's the power for it. If you want to grow in love, yes, push yourself, right? Look for ways to seek people out, but also don't stop looking at the cross. So we should lay our lives down, we should open our hearts, we should love with our actions. I happen to have a really bad memory, right, and this comes to all things. And one of the things I do to help myself, sometimes I just write stuff on post-it notes. If you look in my office, it's post-it notes all over the place, you know, write this, you know, brush your teeth, that kind of stuff. And so <laughs> even if I forget, I'm walking around and I see that post-it note and it reminds me of the thing that's on there. And I just want to encourage you guys as those who've been loved by Jesus. We are like little post-it notes that are posted all around the life of this church, the life of this city, as reminders of what Christ has done for his people, of the great love of Christ. For those who've never even seen the love of Christ, you are a little picture of that for people. For people who've forgotten the love of Christ, you are a very powerful reminder of the love of Christ. Take that mission very seriously, and let's love one another in a way that actually shows up in the way that we live. Amen. All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you more than anything for the love of your son, Jesus. Thank you for giving Jesus for us, God. And Father, we pray that as we sing and as we take the Lord's Supper, Father, uh, that we would be reflecting on that love, Lord, and that you would drive us to love each other. If anybody doesn't know the love of Jesus here today, Father, we pray that even as we continue, that you would press in on their hearts, God, and you would urge them to turn so that they can know it. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.